Well, welcome. We are glad you are here. It is a fun day to be here. If this is your first time with us, thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us together with us today as we continue to be a community that is learning to live and love like Jesus. As we as we reflect today, if, uh, I hope that this is a meaningful Sunday for you. It's a time in which you have felt that you've encountered the power of the resurrection and the story of God. If this is your first Sunday, please stop and introduce yourself to us on the way out. You can stop by the welcome desk. You can pick up a mug. It's our way of inviting you to the table, saying you are welcome here. And we are just glad that you are with us here today. For the past few weeks, we have been in a journey together through the desert. We've been in this journey in which we've called the Lent season. As we've been learning, Lent is a deeply reflective season. It's a season which reflects on the 40 days leading up to Easter in which Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. In in silence and in fasting in the wilderness, listening and discerning. For you and me, I hope this Lent season has been a healthy time of journeying together. That it's been a good time of pausing and learning to align ourselves to the values of the Father's heart. But not all the days of Lent are so bright and so reflective. In fact, the Lent journey also has some dark days when we stop and reflect on them. On Friday, we looked and we were faced with a bloody, brutal, and violently morbid scene of our Messiah, of our King, of Jesus, and his capital murder for crimes he didn't commit. On Saturday, we grappled as he lay in the grave with questions and with doubts. Now, this morning... And it almost, it all works out in the end, storybook fashion. We celebrate the glorious end of that journey. The glorious closing of our Lent season. You may remember that we've called our Lent season Living Ink. Because the story did not end with the Lent season. It did not end with Jesus in the grave. Today, we can celebrate that the Easter story shows us that we too can remain and become characters in the greatest story ever told. That is the awesomeness of the story and why we have called it Living Ink. The glorious ending is Easter. Today is the Easter worship celebration and gathering And Easter is a time in which we stop and we remember and celebrate that Jesus is Lord over all things. And that his story continues to be written. It is a time in which we claim triumph as we remember the many things in which Jesus overcame. Through his story we see Jesus overcome temptation and flesh, sickness, disease, oppression, and then even death. As a result of this, as we walked in here this morning, maybe you feel a little lighter today as we hold these things in perspective through the greatness of this day. Maybe this morning as you drove here, you noticed more signs of spring than normal. You began to see more new life than you've seen the rest of the week. This is a day to realize that the Creator made a way for his creation to be reconciled with him for all eternity, despite our brokenness. 
When you came in this morning, you should have received the bulletin. Inside that bulletin, you'll find some, some notes with some underlines to follow along. I encourage you just to fill in the spots as we go along. I think you'll enjoy chewing on some of the stuff we talk about this morning for the rest of the week as well. We as followers of Jesus, without a doubt, look forward to this day. This day in which we realize that as creation, we get to be made right with the Creator. The Easter season so meanfully correlates with spring. Like Easter, it's a time in which we can remember and celebrate warmth and new life and movement. It's a day that we have packed full of emotional traditions. Easter eggs, family dinners, and stories of the aspects of the kingdom yet to come. These emotional realizations are so much, but there are emotional realizations that are so much more than these traditions can tell. This morning, we celebrate the promise of new life, of a pursuing love, and the fact that we've been made right despite our wrongs. However, as we pause and as we celebrate this morning, I do not want us to get distracted with all of the reasons of Easter. However, Easter is not just a time of emotional resurgence to remind ourselves that death no longer holds a sting over our lives. The story of Easter is so much more important. It is so much bigger than just the fact of eternal life. So this morning, let's not be distracted and see Easter just as a time of emotional resurgence to remind ourselves that death no longer holds a sting. Actually, the powerful story of resurrection holds so much more because it's where God, the creator of all, poured his love out on us in the most giving way ever. So this morning we also remember and celebrate, because Jesus is Lord, the powerful story of resurrection has implications for our everyday lives. It's not just something that we remind ourselves of once a year. It's not something that we just remind ourselves as we age in life. In fact, this day is a time which the evidence of the love of God we've committed to learning and to experiencing shines brightly. The reality of the the resurrection is proof that what was broken can be made right. It reminds us that we now stand as as the veil was torn in a powerful and inaugurated kingdom in which the daddy gets to let his children play with his toys. It reminds us today that for the rest of the year, and for the rest of our lives, that we all have equal access to God. The story of resurrection is so much more powerful than just eternal life. This morning we're going to be looking at John 1 through 18. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to read along. You can also find it on the Red Pew Bible in front of you on page uh, 1074. Or you may choose just to follow along with me on the screen. The words will be up there as well. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. 
He bent over and he looked in and the strips of linen, lying, linen were lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen laying there. As well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. At this point, she turned to him and cried out, Teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things that he had said to her. As I said earlier, this morning, we need to remember the powerful implications of the resurrection story for our lives. But I also think that sometimes we get to read this story and we celebrate what it means for us at the end of our lives, but we don't stop and actually see that there's a whole bunch of common hang-ups that we fall victim to in the midst of this story. The cool thing is that Jesus used really cool broken people in in, in their lives to tell his story. And so as we look at this story, there's actually some common hang-ups that we fall victim to, some things that we see the characters of this story doing that we often do. And if we are not careful in the same way, we may miss out on what the Lord is saying or what he's trying to teach us about this powerful story of resurrection. So this morning, while we celebrate Easter and while we celebrate its power, we are also going to look at some common hang-ups from this story that we know so well. Some things that often inhibit us. The Lent season was building up to a great thing. And there are some common hang-ups that I think will stop us from experiencing that great thing if we let it. First, like Mary, in fear we often run from the discomfort of reality. And we look for answers from each other rather than from God. In this story... We see Mary acting purely emotional. In fact, she was so reactionary that it says that as soon as she realized the body was missing, she ran back to the disciples so much that, as the Scripture says, she was breathlessly panting. 
So she saw the missing body, and instead of going to God in the midst of this discomfort, she runs back to the disciples as fast as she can be, to the point where it depletes her, where it exhausts her. We find that Mary automatically assumes the worst at every chance that she's given to believe. How many times do we do this? How many times do we judge something that God might be doing and automatically assume the worst about it? This is exactly what we see Mary happening here. Every time the Lord gives her a chance to believe, she assumes the worst. No, that's not Jesus. That's the gardener. Because of the weight of losing Jesus, it seems that Mary was not able to pump her brakes and pause in the wilderness. As a result... She was increasingly overwhelmed by her own anxiety. Mary runs to tell the disciples immediately. Without thinking or looking to the Father God, who Jesus was constantly and consistently pointing to throughout his life. She missed it. We see that the disciples also seemingly reacted on feelings through the word of others and their own overwhelming emotions. Soon as Mary tells Peter and John, the story says they left immediately on the dot, on the double for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. They were so reactionary to what Mary had told them on the words of another person that they ran neck and neck to find out what happened to his body. John, who gets to the tomb first, seems crippled by his fear. Or by his running. We're not really sure. He kind of gets to the tomb and he just stops. And doesn't have the guts to go inside. He peeks into it. John was tempted to peek in but not enter. This is an important distinction for us today. Far too often when something is uncomfortable for us, we'd rather judge from the sideline. We'd rather stand on the corner of the abyss and peek down it just till we get our vertigo, and then step back. We want, we know we need to enter discomfort, but far too often we allow ourselves to stop just at the edge of it. In this story, Peter and John show us that if we find the courage to overcome the discomfort of reality, that we can actually believe what the hand of God is doing. Peter was this like pioneer apostle type of guy. As soon as he gets the word, I mean, he's not stopping at the tomb. Even if John's faster than him, he just bulges right in. He just, no stopping Peter, right? As soon as he gets there, he just, he dodges right in past John. John then follows Peter's visionary pioneering move. They notice that the claws were folded separately. And by facing the discomfort of reality, they actually found and believed, the Scripture says, the confirmation of God at work without head knowledge. How many times do we need somebody to go in the door for us? And then when that person runs through the tomb and sees that it's not so scary after all, that there's actually hope and life and new stuff that God is doing in the midst of that, that we actually follow alongside. Yet, even though they walked in and they believed what they saw, I think it, it got stuck up here. It was a head knowledge. 
See, when Peter and John walk into the tomb, it says they believed, but the first thing they do is just run back to where they were before, and they go back into hiding. In fact, that is still where they are later. In fact, Jesus has to send Mary back to them because they believed, but they didn't encounter. They stepped in, they tasted that God was alive, but they didn't stay for the encounter. They didn't stay for the moment. And they walked back with this head knowledge, okay, the story's not over. But they didn't stay and let it get him here. Like Mary, though, we can fall victim to grief, focusing too much on what we've lost in life over what we've gained or what is around us. Mary, who had to run for the others, reacted, assumed the worst, and then sent anxious dwelling on the floor of the tomb of what she had lost. The angels even tried to get her to stop and develop some self-realization, some self-awareness in the moment. They proposed to her the question, why do you weep? Mary doesn't get over her sense of loss yet, though. She is still standing there crying. So the angels can't get through to her. So she's wallowing and losing her master so much that she seems unmoved by the presence of angels. How many times in the scripture do people seem unmoved by angels? This is probably one of the only encounters in which we see someone not need the words, hey, do not fear, we're angels sent from God. She doesn't even care that they're there. She's just so victim to her grief and loss. When Jesus said Mary, she has an honest kairos moment. Kairos is a Greek word in which means the right or opportune and supreme moment. We may call it an appointed time in the purpose of God. In the New Testament, the word kairos appears 81 times. To describe a moment or a season in which God uses to give you a teaching moment of the kingdom. It's a time in which he allows himself to be invested in us or a value of the kingdom to be taught to us. A Kairos moment can often be disguised as a time of heightened emotion, anxiety, or a realization. These moments are opportunities in which Jesus wants to teach us something in the midst of grappling or grabbing onto something. The question in a Kairos moment then becomes, what is Jesus trying to teach you? Do you realize it? Do you see what Jesus is trying to teach you? And then, what are you going to do about it? This is what we see happening to Mary. Jesus then, after the angels aren't able to get through to her, says, Mary. This moment, after she finally gets over thinking that he's a gardener, she looks at him and says, teacher. She has a moment in the midst of her anxiety and her emotion that she is able to see that the hand of God is there, that God is there and wants to teach her something. She's had a moment of realization. However, we learn from Jesus' interaction with Mary 
that in his pursuit of us, we are tempted to hold on to the things that are not permanent. I'm going to say that one again. However, we learn from Jesus' interaction with Mary that in his pursuit of us, we are tempted to hang on to the things that are not permanent. When Mary is finally able to see Jesus for who he is, she wants to hang on to him. She needs to feel the teacher's comfort. She needs to feel the teacher's warmth again. But what does Jesus tell her? No. Don't hold on to it right now. I am still ascending to my Father. But he gives her this great encouragement that I don't want us to overlook. He reassures them of his discipleship process. This idea that I've invested in myself and you through the various kairos and teaching moments of, of your discipling, and now you are released on your own. At this point, Jesus moves them from a discipling relationship to a relationship of partnership. We see this when Jesus says, God is my God and your God. God God is my Father and He is your Father. He establishes the partnership. He establishes that is the permanency of what happened. Not that you get to hold on to me forever. How how much in life, when we, when we go through various seasons and we, and we see this glimpse of comfort in a long journey that we just want to grab to it and we just want to hold on to it as long as we can. Maybe it's something that makes us feel good. Maybe it's the way we do something in church, the way we hold on to our favorite song or something like that. What do we hold on to that we wish was permanent, but at the end of the day was just a teaching moment? The power of the resurrection story is that we become contagiously full of life through encounters with Jesus. Mary went from the presence of Jesus, now reacting not to her own anxiety and her emotions, but the encounter that she had with the risen King. Reacting to the life of Jesus and the effects of encountering him and the power of the resurrection. Mary left that encounter with Jesus, believing in the change. Mary left that encounter changed. She witnessed then to the disciples. God used Mary to go back and reignite them. God God used Mary to tell the disciples and to reveal that God is now in partnership with us on this earth. And today she stands even as our own apologetic proof The fact that a woman had witnessed the Messiah is our apologetic proof. The power of Mary's encounter with Jesus lives on. The resurrection was a kairos moment for Mary. And it is for us, but it is just one of many teaching moments in which Jesus has planned for you and me. The question in these moments then becomes, what is Jesus trying to teach you right now? Or through the story of the resurrection? What is he trying to teach you? The second question becomes, do you realize it? As you look at the story of, of, of the resurrection, are you able to see what it means for you? And are you able to see what God wants you to do with it? Paul, through his own Kairos moments, describes the effects of the resurrection on life later in 2 Corinthians, 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. He says, but thanks 
be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And then later on again, Paul describes it like this. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The story lives on. We continue to be characters in this story. It is a Kairos moment. Do we have a pep rally of Easter? Or does the power of the resurrection fuel us? Has it changed us? Have we encountered it in a Kairos encounter? Entitled my sermon this morning, Now I Am a Believer. Why? Because in 1966, Neil Diamond was drafted to write a song for the TV show The Monkees. That song... Neil Diamond describes encountering love in a way that could be described as a Kairos moment. An encounter of love that resurrected him from one life to another. The lyrics say this, I thought love was only true in fairy tales, meant for someone else but not for me. Love was out to get me, that's the way it seemed. Disappointment haunted all of my dreams. But then I saw her face, and now I am a believer. Not a trace of doubt in my mind. This morning as we celebrate Easter, and as we worship the, power, the, the Messiah who overcame death and showed us the power of resurrection, let us leave here today authentically being able to confess, now I am a believer. I believe in such a rich and sacrificial love. And it has changed me. I am not the same. I don't need a pep rally. This fuels me. I will not fall victim to these things that I've watched the disciples and Mary fall victim to because I have been encountered by the Messiah. I have tasted and known his love. The resurrection story is one of life-changing love that affects every aspect of our life. The question in this moment then becomes, what is Jesus teaching you about his love? Do you realize it? Are you willing to get over anything that is holding you back? And what are you going to do about it?